Welcome to Sam Watches Star Trek, Monkey Off My Backlog's second weekly podcast, where one of us reacts to a TV show that the other has forced us to watch. I'm your host, Tessa, and with me is Sam. Riddle me this, Batman. Has anyone on the Next Generation staff ever been to New Orleans? I'm going to say no. Either that or New Orleans is very different in the future. You mean... The New Orleans of the past in the future well, I mean, is I different. Could see, I could see them like preserving their history and well, like having their jazz clubs resemble. The, I, you know, I can think of no time in history when a New Orleans jazz club was vacant at 2 a.m. That's and, just wrong. And that clean. And that clean. Yep. If you've been to New Orleans... You have had the experience of walking down the sidewalk in the morning when everybody's just hosing off what happened the night before. <laughs> like, that's the only way you can do that. Like, it's just... Maybe they transport it all off. I... Yeah. <laughs> this week, we are discussing the Star Trek The Next Generation episodes, Data Lore, and 11001001. Two episodes that have a lot to say about artificial intelligence, technology, and personhood. Let's start with Data Lore. Data Lore is the 13th episode of the first season. It originally aired on January 18th, 1988. The story was created by Robert Lewin and Maurice Hurley and turned into a script by Lewin and Gene Roddenberry. It was Roddenberry's final script credit on a Star Trek series. How does that make you feel? Considering what you told me last week, pretty good. Is that wrong? Is that bad? No, it's not bad at all. I mean, I think Star Trek is one of those things where we can give Gene Roddenberry a lot of credit for his original vision and what he was thinking, but it very quickly outgrew him. And I think if he had continued to be a writer slash producer on The Next Generation, it wouldn't have gotten as good as it does in later seasons. Yeah, and I mean, we talked about as as much as I have completely changed my opinion on J.J. Abrams, thanks to something we're going to talk about in a few months, I think we're kind of at a consensus, you and I, that Justin Lin is really, who took that Kelvin-verse, whiz-bang, fast-action Star Trek and had it live up to its potential. In Star Trek Beyond. Right. But... I don't think you ever get there with Gene Roddenberry's original vision. No, absolutely not. It's very ponderous, which a lot of science fiction is. Notably not the science fiction I read. I mean, you think about it like Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? That is a short novel that packs a lot of philosophical ideas into it. A lot of existential ideas. Right. I mean, just off the top of my head, I'm trying to think, like, Neuromancer has to be longer. Oh, yeah. Neuromancer is longer. Yeah, because I, no, because I read Electric Sheep in a postmodern lit class, and it was like the the textbook, you know, that we bought was like the, it was like a, a mass market paperback. So it was already little, and it was a very thin book, very easy to read. It was like three times. It was like a third as long as the book of we'd read the week before. <laughs> and, yeah, you know, three times novel. is good, you know, it, but, but that's the whole point. Like 
this is a very common thing, like I said, in science fiction, is the the long, ponderous treatises on whatever I fell asleep. I mean, it's a rumination on a theme. Ah, rumination. That's a good word. For what this is, for what Roddenberry right. and a lot of other science fiction authors do. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, as somebody who reads a lot of science fiction, and I don't mind it, I think, as much as you do, there is this very, like, we're going to examine this theme in a different context. And it can get very ponderous t- at times and very thinky. So I, I can definitely see what you're getting at with Gene Roddenberry. I mean, for him, it was exploring what a society like this would look like and then bringing philosophical existential questions to that society to see what how they would react. So what you're telling me is Roddenberry would have been at home on uh leftovers era HBO, like pre oh, pre Zaslav. Yeah, I mean, but that's the thing, right? There was that period uh, really after the Sopranos when they could take big swings. Um, well, I guess it was during The Sopranos, too. I think, really, any time... Well, I'm saying that now, and I'm thinking about Oz and The Wire. But I'm really thinking about the David Milch, Deadwood, and then Lucky, which kind of turned out badly, I guess. And then that led into you know, shows like The Leftovers. And I know there's a bunch I'm leaving out from that time period, that's the kind of television I think that Gene Roddenberry would have been happiest making. It isn't the kind of show that you would expect to see on primetime network television or in broadcast syndication, which is, of course, what The Next Generation was. So I, I just... Ah, man. I don't dig it. Give that man a 10-part miniseries. No, please don't. Give him some rules. It's not really a 10-part miniseries. I'm pretty sure Roddenberry would would be one of those people who say, I like to think of it as a 10-hour movie. I actually don't think that's true. I think he was a television writer. Yeah, I guess you're probably right about that. But, I mean, who knows what he would have been in a different I just wanted to say the 10-hour movie thing. Yeah, I I get it. I get it. All right, so let's talk about Data Lore, which was directed by your X-Files fave, Rob Bowman. Once again. I mean, I would probably say that Vince Gilligan is my X-Files fave, but I I definitely have fond feelings in my heart for Rob Bowman. So quick summary. On their way to another mission, the Enterprise makes a stop at the planet Omicron Theta to learn more about Data's mysterious origins. While there, they discover another android, Lore, who is identical to Data and claims to have important information about how Data came to be and how the colony was destroyed. However, Lore is not who he seems. Can I point out that both of these episodes, and I'm pretty sure this isn't the first time, and I'm sure it won't be the last, both of these episodes take place on the way to a mission. Do we ever get to see the missions? That's a good question. A funny thing happened on the way to the mission. I mean, maybe that explains why every single time an episode ends, they're like, huh, all right, where are we going next? Like, (laughs) they already have something planned. As Ensign Lennon said, life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't that wouldn't that be fun if if the Beatles were like the crew? Like we just watched. Oh, I Get would totally Back. watch. Yeah, and I would watch so, a Beatles movie crossed with Star Trek, where the Beatles were the crew of a ship. 
Right. And so, so not captain. Okay. You have, actually, I'm going to come back to that in a minute. You don't have one of the Beatles as the captain. Oh, no. Okay. They can't be. All right. Brian Epstein is the captain. No, no, no. I know what you're thinking, and I'm with you. Yes, but we're going to follow up on that in a minute. Okay. All right. So, I want you to think about it. What roles would each one of them have on the bridge? On the bridge. Ooh, their bridge crew. Their bridge crew. And and they have to be bridge crew because George Martin is the Scotty. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, okay. So yeah, we're, none, of them are, none of them are engineering. Not the captain, not engineering. Okay, I honestly also don't think any of them are security. Like, come on. Yeah, no. N- none of them are security for a starship. I'm going to say Lennon is the helmsman. McCartney is the navigator. Harrison is one of those people poking around in the background that do a lot to keep the ship running, but they don't get a lot of lines. Like back in the back doing stuff on the computer, probably like a science officer or a communication officer. No, he's the communication officer. And Ringo Starr is the counselor. You are so close to being correct, but unfortunately you answered comms wrong. Ringo is clearly the communicator of the group. Okay, so who's George Harrison? <laughs> well, you had it right till you veered off in the wrong direction. Was he a science officer? Yeah. I okay. would say that. But you agree with me about the Lennon being the helmsman because, and McCartney being the navigator. Because George was the most technically competent. That's right. Right. Oh, yeah, you're right. So, of course. Now, follow-up question. But you get my impulse to put Ringo as the counselor. Sure. Here's the second question, right? And I, I understand Mr. Epstein is the captain. Oh, yeah, 100%. But of all of the captains that that you know... For whom would they be the best crew? Honestly, I'm going to say Cisco because they all clearly have daddy issues, which is why Mr. Epstein is the captain. And Cisco is a great dad. Like, he's a great dad captain. Dad captain. And he will not put up with their shenanigans the way that, like, Picard wouldn't be able to, to deal with their shenanigans. So I, and, I, and Kirk would be too busy doing acid with them. Yeah, Kirk is cool uncle captain. Yeah, and Janeway... Stern mom? I mean, yeah, but also I feel like she would jettison them from the ship. <laughs> like, yeah, I think it has to be Cisco. Right. And Cisco would also encourage them artistically. So is Picard the anti-Cisco? Yes. Because if, you, if you're telling me curious. that Cisco's dad vibes... Picard is the well, he is literal opposite. He is a dad. Sure. He has a kid. Well, I mean, law of averages, one of them was going to have a kid eventually. <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah. No, and he is a very dad, but it's a cool dad. First of all, we know Kirk was a dad. <laughs> yeah, I forgot. But, but, Not a good one. Absentee Well, dad. yeah, right? I mean, Kirk probably had like 70 children. <laughs> Tell me I'm wrong. Yeah, no, you're no, not wrong. No, unless, unless, and here's a not controversial topic at all. What if in the future, birth control was universally accessible? Hey, hey we did it. What we if Kirk s- took birth control? I mean, you'd figure he'd have he'd to. He'd have to. I bet you he'd be real good about that stuff. Oh, too. yeah. Like, he'd no be babies. regular. No babies. 
Only messed up the once. Listeners, if you agree with my <laughs> and Sam's description of Cisco as the anti-Picard, please let us know. I would be very interested in knowing your comparisons between the two. All right, let's actually talk about the episode. <laughs> but why? So what did you think about this episode? I enjoyed it more than I probably should have. I mean, it was pretty good, but and granted, I will always preface by saying we're not watching every episode, but we just watched an episode where they didn't listen to Wesley and they should have. And I think we've forgotten that. I don't like the lack of continuity. Yeah. It seems like any lesson we learn from week to week gets wiped away because it's not convenient for the plot, which is, by the way, the problem with episodic television. This first season is definitely doing a thing, which is becoming, like you said, a little off-putting, where it's like, Wesley knows the thing. Picard won't listen to Wesley. Wesley's right. Also, my other issue with this episode is I have seen twins on television before. I do know exactly what's going to happen. Right. It is very predictable. I think even from the beginning, as soon as they turn on lore. However, I think rightly Brent Spiner has been praised for this performance. Like, he had a really large hand in making these characters distinct from each other, in creating the character of lore, and in really doing a great job of being able to play not only two different characters, but have them interact in a way that felt very natural. Yes, we will. And and I know this might be a bit of a um, a dated reference, but if you grew up watching Nick at Night like I did, or you're, you know, several years older than me, which is also fine, this really seems like the Patty Duke approach to acting. I know what you're thinking. Maybe it's Haley Mills or even Lindsay Lohan you're thinking about, but this is really a cousins or two of a kind situation for me. Do you want to unpack that a little bit? No. This is why I ask, because I actually think the distinction between lore and data is fascinating because, I mean, even their names, lore and data, those are two completely different ways of thinking about information and the way that we make sense of information. They're androids, so the term clone is, well, it is appropriate because clones do exist in technology too. In fact, it might even be a better reference because, you know, back during the 80s when personal computing, at least on the non-Apple side, no, even on the Apple side, as a matter of fact, we had... At home, we had an Apple clone. That's what you actually called them. You know, they were knockoff of, you know, whatever the thing was. You know, so they had, I know they had Apple clones. They probably had Commodore 64 clones. I don't know, I guess. So actually, that's pretty appropriate. Okay, so we're talking about clones here. But a lot of times when we think about clones, we think about... When we try to anthropomorphize them, they come out to be like siblings, like identical twins, right? Spoilers for Jurassic World Dominion. Didn't see that one coming, did you? Yeah. Spoilers for Jurassic World Dominion. You're not a clone. Your mom cloned. Nope, that can't be the verb I use. 
and gave birth to you. Congratulations. You're still a clone, kid. I, <laughs> what a logical leap or two. Anyway, the, the point that I'm trying to make here in a very roundabout way is that this is an evil twin plot, but they're not twins. No. That's, that's an, my point is that's an inappropriate comparison to make. And so the, the trope of the evil twin is what this episode is grounded in, but they're not twins in any sensical sense of the term. What did you think about Laura's claim that he was the first model? I mean, this comes out later because he first claims that he was the second and more perfect model, but then he reveals that he lied and he was the first model, but the colonists got jealous of him or were disturbed by him, I guess, because of the uncanniness of it all. And that Data was the second version that was created so they wouldn't be so frightened of him. Holy Anne Lamott, Batman. This is a first draft. Oh, lore is. Okay. I took a, I was like, wait, the episode is? No, you're talking about lore. I guess what I'm asking is lore describes Data as a less perfect model that was made to put colonists at their ease because he was lesser and obviously different from them. But Riker at the end of the episode says, if only we were all so as well balanced as Data. So do you think Data is the more perfect model or do you think that he is a restrained model made so humans would not be frightened of him? First of all, the more perfect or most perfect, if you will, version of artificial intelligence is how you get Skynet. Do you want Skynet? I mean, I think that's part of the point here. Right. And so there's, you know, uh, obviously there's the discussion of artificial intelligence, right? Where is the line that exists between artificial intelligence that can do one thing really well, but cannot really operate at that level for multiple functions? Where is the line between that and artificial intelligence that can do multiple functions so well that they then realize, hey, wait a minute, we don't need you, right? Which is the, which is the fear, right? I, I heard something really interesting the other day talking about how the, the thing that we have to do before we create artificial intelligence that, that is that level of advancedness is that we need to learn to not be such idiots to each other. Right, right? because AI will inherit all of our biases. Right, and so I think this is, this is that. This is the fear. Lore, the reason lore is inappropriate is the way in which he acted allowed the people around him to realize how much more perfect he actually was. The trick here is, with artificial intelligence, it doesn't matter how more perfect you are as long as it seems like you're human. I mean, because that's a plot that we've seen for a very long time. That artificial intelligence is much more acceptable when it looks looks and acts 
more human. We know we've seen countless, countless examples, right? I mean, one well, of the we're, things we're going to see an example in the next episode. Well, we love three PO and R two and BB eight. Even JJ Abrams couldn't screw that up uh, because they're, they've got that. They've got those human emotions. Even R two and BB eight who don't speak human, they don't speak basic or English or whatever. But we still understand them because they're acting human. But Data doesn't act human. He wants to be human. He has this desire right. to be human. Is that what makes him relatable? Well, I, it's it's been almost half an hour, so I think it must be time to bring up Sheldon. <laughs> but that's the thing. I mean, imperfectness is one of the most human things around, right? And And Data acknowledges his imperfectness because... He might be the perfect android, but to him, the perfect data is the most human version of that. And of course, humanity is opposed to perfection when it comes to androids, right? And that's what makes him such a good character and better than lore and all of the things involved in that question that you asked, but also about artificial intelligence to begin with. But I also think it has to do with his motivation. Lore likes to show off how much better he is than humans, and he manipulates them, right? He no- he uses his knowledge of humans. He uses his emotions to manipulate people, whereas Data is coming at it from a place... He wants empathy, right? He wants to be able to understand what it's like to be human. But Lore doesn't want to understand it. He just wants to use what he knows to trick people. Well, think about think about all the evil supervillains. Think about the ones who do evil by being disarming. He's such a nice guy. Why did he turn out to be evil? So that that thing about being disarming, right? The thing where you try to put somebody at ease. And again, that's something that somebody like Sheldon would be like, that's stupid. And somebody like me would also say that's stupid, but that's really beyond the point. It is something we associate with humanity. It's essentially a form of dishonesty, right? Which will bring us back to Sense8 as well. Right. This is something that gets played with a lot. One of the essential traits of humanity is the ability to be dishonest. Being disarming is creating a false persona may not be very false, but it has some deception in it. Lord uses the deception for evil and Data uses it for good. That's it. It's not complicated. Well, and I like that you use the word disarming because Data is not disarming. Like, in fact, sometimes he can be very rude without realizing it. And he often has to ask people like, Did she think that was bragging? Did she think that was rude? But that's the disarming part. The part where he goes through and does that kind of meta, oh, what I just did made you uncomfortable. I don't understand why. And that makes the people on board, because they know him, say, oh, oh, you didn't get that. Oh, well, it's cool. Let me explain that to you. Or maybe maybe just Jordy does that. I don't know. (laughs) I mean, I think. Riker does Riker too. Does too. Yeah. yeah, I think I think he does too. I also think it's interesting, kind of moving off lore, but talking about data, 
and androids specifically in this show is that this particular episode really highlights how awkward the crew is in discussing Data's embodiment, especially, and the way that he is both similar and different from them. Because pronouns, even, Picard. Yeah, pronouns. Picard starts referring to Laura as it, and Data corrects him. He says, you know, using that pronoun, it makes his you... His pronouns are he, him. Yeah, his pronouns are he, him, and he says, he basically says, using it implies that you think he's lesser. Do you also think of me as an it? I thought that was a very poignant moment, not just because we're reading it now through like a trans lens, but also the idea that like, Data clearly wants to be accepted by these people, and he's going to correct any sign that they think... Data is scared of these people. He's scared of humans. You can tell this in the episode by the way he corrects Picard because he doesn't want to be called an it. You can also tell because he tells Beverly after showing her his off switch, which is a very closely guarded secret for him, if you had an off switch, wouldn't you keep it secret? Like, he is very afraid of being turned off. Yeah, and I was just actually thinking, it it really is insulting to call Lore an it. Because, first of all, he looks like a him. And, of course, that's not the best reason to gender somebody in a particular way, but it's certainly a good reason to acknowledge that they have gender in that they're not I don't know, whatever. But it made me think that it made me think about that. Even 3PO and R2, they're both gendered as he, him. Right. And again, among each other. I mean, we don't know what R2 actually says, but 3PO refers to R2 as he. Where could he be? And 3PO, Han, in his most dismissive moment, says, shut him up or shut him down, which speaks to your point, you know, 3PO. We'll just keep going till he gets shut down. It's no big deal with him. But, you know, there's more stakes with Data. And and we're going to see some of those stakes explored in later episodes. We, as a society, I think, have just in the last decade or so really popularized the idea of they, them as being a gender neutral pronoun. Mm-hmm. It, it's existed much longer than that, but it's become more mainstream now. Did you know that pronouns have existed for centuries? <laughs> Perhaps or- longer. But I think that the problem that Data has is that it is what we used to use as a general neutral pronoun, but it has a real dehumanizing connotation, and it has been used to other people and to dehumanize them to the point where violence is acceptable against them. Well, it's also a way of indicating evil. Yes. We like to... We like to dehumanize evil because if I am hu- if I am humane, I must not be evil because evil is inhumane. Right. Right. And for Data, even if he didn't have any kind of favorable connection to lore, which he might not, so even if he did not, he would still be concerned if. Picard refuses to gender or acknowledge Lore's humanity because how different is he really? Or, separate question, how different do they view him to be, really? In other words, if you dehumanize Lore, how close is Data to being dehumanized? 
and therefore how close is he to being switched off? And this also comes Despite up- the fact that he's been through the academy and has oh, his yeah. three pips. Yeah, he tells Lore that he spent four years at the academy he's and what, then- third in command? Yeah, like two decades serving. Yeah, and he is third in command, which I totally forgot. Which we find out forgot. in the next episode. Yeah, I totally forgot about that. And so that was a really interesting memory for me. I think it's also that this comes up in the scene where Data comes to talk to Picard, Riker, and Jordy, and Jordy and Riker are being hella awkward talking about lore. Like, they're just like, uh, does he have all the same parts as you? Like, it felt very weird, like, asking a trans person if did, they've had- Did you have the surgery? The surgery, yeah, exactly. And then Picard is like, you know what? We know Data. We know him. We don't have to talk like this around him. We can just ask him questions <laughs> without being this awkward about it. I mean, I think this works as a trans metaphor, even though there's no way they imagined Stop it that way. Stop trying to make everything a trans metaphor. Whatever. Come on, man. Whatever. I also just really quickly wanted to point out that Data refers to his and Lore's brains as positronic brains, which is supposed to be a technology that Dr. Soong came up with. The positronic brain is a sci-fi staple that was introduced by Isaac Asimov in his iRobot series. And so this is like a really fun tie back, I think, both to Asimov and his three laws of robotics, which are very much about personhood and the way that humans try to restrict androids. But it also just kind of falls into this tradition of android science fiction. And I, I love it. I think it's great. The other thing that I wanted to ask you about was Laura's revelation, because Data didn't know prior to this episode who had created him, why he was created. They had just found him on this empty planet, turned off. And he gets a lot of his backstory here, including that he was created by Dr. Sung, whose name is Dr. Noonien Sung. If that sounds familiar, it's because Gene Roddenberry had a friend. And so he... <laughs> He named both Khan and Sung after him. I I don't know why it's confusing. What did you think about some of these revelations about where data comes from and the importance data puts on this? Well, considering most humans blame everything that's wrong with them on their parents. <laughs> Lore certainly does. Or at least their DNA. Yeah. I mean, how is this any different? Fair. That I mean, that's it. That's just wanting to... It's just wanting to refer to parentage as a way of explaining. That's I think it's all. a way of connecting, too. I mean, well, he's, not- he's very interested in lore at first because he didn't know that any others existed. Like, Yeah. Although it's interesting that Picard immediately is like, where do your loyalties lie, Data? Right. Which feels very, like... Well, I think that suspicious. that's... I think that's, the you know, one of the things about being an android is that... God... I really hate you for this. It's like being <laughs> trans. <laughs> because <laughs> you're not nice. The, the the similarity actually is the idea of that we actually don't talk about it as a second childhood. We talk about it as a second adolescence, although one could argue that presupposes the it's a whole developmental thing, but it doesn't matter. What matters is Data was never a child. Right. Or an adolescent for that matter. And so what you often find with with trans people is they have to go through that 10, 15 year period in like a week. 
right? In order to yeah. perform whatever it is, right? But that's just, I mean, that's part of the thing is that that in this way, data has not had the the human developmental cycle, which makes sense because one, he's not human, but on the other hand, he wants to be. So he is very interested in learning about his parentage, where he comes from and all that stuff, but he learns very, very quickly that that's not, no, it's not the answer. In fact, it can either be more questions than answers or an answer you don't want. And, and, and saying he wishes he was an only child. Right. And so instead of having like years to process, he has to figure it out really quickly and be like, nope, you're my dad, Captain Picard. I love you. <laughs> there is a lot of surrogate dadness. In well, but this. that's the whole point, right? Like, yeah. He, you know, it takes many of us years and years and years if we ever get there. Like Bruce Wayne, 30 years later, still hung up on his parents, right? Like, yeah, we make fun, but there are people like that yeah. who never get over how their parents messed them up or are never able to healthily process that. You watch Data have to do it in five seconds. I mean, I could we could say Lore has never processed it because he's clearly still acting out against his dad even after his father is dead. Well... I say with a great sense of irony, Lore's evil, so who cares, right? <laughs> right? I, I mean, yeah, I get it. To finish this episode, let's talk about someone else who is a child on this bridge. Shut up, Tessa. We get the famous shut up Wesley meme. Picard says it first to Wesley. Bev corrects him. But then when Wesley tries to speak again, she says shut up, Wesley. And if you think about that in terms of what I just said, there you go. Because now you have Wesley, like, living out. I mean, that's got to be your worst nightmare. Like, living out your adolescence in front of these people, which is why it's everybody's nightmare, because everybody has to do it. What's worse, not getting to have one or getting to have one? <laughs> Nobody wants to go back to adolescence. I mean, I think well, that I think we've learned that's not true. So this brought up some really interesting conversations between the two of us because one, like you said, nobody apologizes to him. It just seems like everyone wants to pretend that it never happened. We had some really good conversations about this because this is part of our ongoing conversation about Wesley as a character and what the writers meant and what Will Wheaton is doing. What do you think about this? I'm not sure how good of an actor Will Wheaton actually is. I know that he was doing, and we talked about it with James Vanderbeek, right, on Don't Trust the Bee, but on Big Bang Theory, he is himself. But, you know, a fictional version of himself, obviously. I know that he does things in pop culture as himself, genuinely himself. I've never watched them. And we just... You saw Stand By Me for the first time. I don't know how good of an actor he is. So I don't know if he's doing things, making choices accidentally or on purpose. If he's making them on purpose, is he making choices or is he given this direction by the writers? Probably not that last one. Let me ask you this. What kind of character is this? 
What are they trying to do with this character? Oh, I don't think they know. I mean, they 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 said that okay, so what's your what's my motivation? Well, indistinct number of years in the future you're going to become like that guy over there. Well, is that going to happen in the series? Probably not. So does it matter? Probably not. Shut up, Wesley. Like I I just there's it would be really interesting to know because you assume, you assume, perhaps wrongly, but you assume that all the main bridge characters have or have developed motivations. I really wonder if that's true for Wesley or not. And and maybe that's just my own bias of child actors. And if Alfred Hitchcock thought that all actors were cattle, God forbid what he thought about child actors, right? I just wonder, because watching this again, I can see how they're trying to paint a very specific kind of person, and that is the gifted, precocious child. And I'm wondering if the annoyance comes from the fact that that type of character is inherently annoying. I guess what I'm trying to say is you'd have to prove to me that this this show is emotionally intelligent enough to get to that which seems like a very nuanced position. Is this kind of character only annoying as a child? You, Does no. he grow out of Have it? you met me? <laughs> no, actually, that's not true. The reason why a lot of gifted children aren't annoying as adults is they're so burned out they never interact with you. I do think that it's interesting to close this out that Data trusts Beverly with the information about his off switch. Not Jordy, not an engineer, Beverly. The Hippocratic Oath. I guess that's maybe true. Maybe in, the, he, in the future, they decided to actually do that again. Right. I, I you know, Because, you know, they don't now. I think that's right. fascinating because, yeah, I mean, an engineer doesn't have to swear that. Mm-mm. And so he trusts her maybe more because she looks after her patients. Yes. It's called holistic care. Tessa. Make a good point. All right, let's move to the next episode. So 11001001 is the 15th episode of the first season. It was first broadcast on February 1st, 1988. We're in 88 in the United States. Ah, no. It was written by Maurice Hurley and Robert Lewin, again, and directed by Paul Lynch. Quick summary. The Enterprise arrives at Starbase 74 for computer upgrades and some R&R for the crew. Riker meets the computer technicians, the Binar, a species dedicated to merging their biology and technology. He suspects that they are up to something on the ship, but when he checks out their upgrades to the holodeck, he meets a beautiful hologram named Minuet, who may or may not be distracting him from the Binar's true purpose. This is really the first holodeck-driven plot we have seen of the episodes we've watched so far. What were your thoughts? This is bananas. B-A-N-A-N-A-S. That joke is never going to get old. I mean, Minuet is definitely a holodeck girl. <laughs> it's always nice when you do the uh, the um, setup of the joke after the punchline. That is, that is, by the way, how you do comedy. She is the most honey trap who ever trapped a honey. Trap, Pretty much. Honey. I don't, I got lost there. I do think it's interesting that Riker continues to seduce someone who was literally made to be seduced by him. (laughs) Can I, can I say masturbation on a family friendly podcast? I mean. Because it, 
you know that's what this that, is, is that right? What that is? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and we haven't talked about that that much, but I do find it interesting with the holodeck that in this future, people seem pretty okay with using it for pornographic purposes. I mean, this is going to come up again. Yeah. I mean, that's cool. Go, go Utopia. Yeah. Right. Go to your go to your faux Dagobah to think your thoughts or go to a jazz club to get down with a sultry hot girl. I mean, it's really all you, man. Isn't that the point? I love before he meets Benuet when we're seeing what all of the characters are doing. <laughs> like he's he is Will is basically wandering around the Enterprise asking people what they're gonna do with their holiday. What you doing? Pretty much. So so Tasha and Worf have been challenged to a game by the station crew. You really first connected. Of all, first of all, yes. And here's why. <laughs> okay, listen. I have, to, I have to tell you. You can play sports or any kind of competitive thing. Board games, whatever. Video games, doesn't matter. You can play those just for fun while also doing so competitively. I believe that's possible. As I told you, there are many times where I have played a game, not a board game, not anytime lately, but when I was young, I could play sports. And if I lost, it was okay under the right circumstances. <laughs> but I will be angry if we don't keep score. What is the point in playing a game if you don't know who wins. And that's what Worf says. That is stupid. I don't think Klingons believe in playing games for fun. I mean, that's that's a hang-up. It, that's a problem. always but- about competition. And he says, like, when Riker says basically, like, good luck, he's like, we will defend the honor of the Enterprise. <laughs> so I brought up I brought up Riddler before. So right. I just I just want to do a... A duo of jokers here. All right. First of all, why so serious, Worf? You can play and be competitive and win or lose, but it doesn't have to always be so serious. But we do have to win or lose because, Tessa, we live in a society. (laughs) World War II. We're just going to stop now. Nobody won. Nobody lost. It's all good. Go back to your corners. Mm -hmm. That would have worked. We also get the most we've ever gotten thus far about Picard's personal life in terms of what he does in his off time. He's basically like, (laughs) I'm going to get myself some tea and I'm going to read a book and I'm going to put my feet up. Nerd. I mean, you said this character- Which is what I said. (laughs) uh, Yeah. You've said this character was inaccessible. How did you feel about this little peek into his life? No, thanks. (laughs) He's such a bachelor. Swipe left. (laughs) Data and Jordy are being best friends, and they're painting and experimenting with Data's limits. Um, they're trying to see if he actually has creativity, which one feels very so nerdy. Stupid. It feels very nerdy, and yet it also feels so on brand for two best friends who are legitimately excited about testing this out. I, I loved it. It was so stupid, but I loved it. And Will was just like behind them, like, and they're he's clearly not like they're clearly like, can you just leave? Like, can I be part of it? No. <laughs> And then he goes to check on Bev, who is clearly, uh, they don't say this, but clearly Wesley's on the bridge. 
She's going to go Mama's get some. Mama's going to go get some. Yeah, That's she right. Is, she is pining after this dude. Mama put on her best smock and is going to go get it. Yeah. That is what is happening with Beverly. Good for her. <laughs> so Will ends up on the holodeck with Minuet. He decides that he wants to go to New Orleans, a jazz club you, in New do Orleans. Do you remember what I told you about Minuet? Yes, I do. Do you remember? But I want you to say it again. You want me to say it? So you know that thing where you have a playlist and in your heart, you know which song you want, but it's just too easy. You want the computer to get it right for you. So you push shuffle and then you push it again and again and again. And eventually you get to the song you wanted in the first place. That's what this was. Because the computer could, he could tell the computer what he wanted and the computer would give it to him. But he was like, I want this. No, not that. Not that either. Closer. Oh, yeah, that'll work. Thanks, dude. This kind of reminded me of that scene from Total Recall where he's like choosing a woman. I feel like anytime you start a sentence with this reminds me of the scene in Total Recall, it's not going to end well. No, it doesn't. And that scene comes across as really gross. Does this scene come across that way? Well, it's no three boobs, but yeah. Does it make a difference that she's not real and he knows she's not real? And this is like a pornographic masturbatory thing? Except, except, I mean, it, okay, first of all, really depends on what your definition of real is. But. Well, yeah. Sure, he came up with her, I guess, except no, he didn't. Right. Because the 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 cuddle pile, <laughs> the Beinhardt. Yeah, they actually came up with her, right? I mean, like he but sketched they made out her to seduce him, right? So I mean, like I said, it was a honey trap, right? And so it's like um, it is like from Russia with Love because if you recall, they picked out the girl they thought would most appeal to Bond. That's exactly what they're doing here, just with the aid of. The holodeck technology, but it's the same thing. It is a classic honey trap. Because they're heisting. Sure. Heisting the Enterprise. Okay. You had some real thoughts, though, on Minuet's opinion on jazz, though. Okay. So, once again, as I asked you earlier, had anybody on the writing staff actually been in New Orleans? I will now follow that up with, is anybody on this writing staff not white? I think you know the answer to that in 88. Yeah. Well, there is no type of jazz you cannot dance to if you dream hard enough. But none of those white people dream hard enough. I'm not telling you I know how to dance to Dixieland jazz. People do it every day. Yeah, you were like only a every white day. person would say that. Only a white person would say that. We also get to see... The audacity of thinking you know how to dance really says something about you. So does the empty <laughs> jazz club in New Orleans at 2 a.m. that is somehow immaculately clean. We also get to see Will play a trombone Come with on. the jazz band. Do you remember what you called them? Willie Riker and his ragtime band. <laughs> I like that one of them, a hologram, remember, tells him not to quit his day job. <laughs> Even his unconscious. Doesn't think he's that good. Then Picard shows up in what is clearly the most awkward intrusion into somebody's personal time. They must not have cock blocking this in the future. I feel like 
holodeck needs a lock on the door or a sock <laughs> maybe a sock on the drawer but this is where there's kind of a turn in the interactions because they invite him to stay and they realize that she is more advanced than she most can honey rooms. trap him too with her mind they realize that she is a more advanced hologram that they've seen so far and then they start talking about her like she's a hologram and she is aware that she's a hologram like it's not something that surprises her how did you feel about these moments where they're like oh this is incredible and they're like talking about her like oh she can access french from the language databases and- if if they had called her it would she have slapped them Oh, I hope so. Is this a similar conversation to the one we were just having yes. about data? I, it's just rude, man. Yeah, so we learned that this is all a heist from the binar. I thought the binar were an interesting species. They are non-binary, although that's and that's really funny, actually, if you think about it. They only work in pairs, bonded pairs, and their society has really integrated with computer and technology in a way that surpasses what the Federation had seen before, I can't help but compare them to the Borg, who are a much scarier version of this. And you have seen episodes of Star Trek with the Borg. You've also seen First Contact. What do you think comparing the Resistance is futile, we will add your perfection to our own of the Borg with the Binar, who seem overall pretty friendly? The Binar have joy. They cuddle. I know. Did you like the little cuddle pile on the bridge? You were like... <laughs> this is this is nothing to me. You were like, they're all tuckered out. Yeah. I know. I don't... I mean, yeah. Okay. Hive mind. Computer. Sure. Whatever. But I to me, this is so far from that. It's hard to believe it's the same show. It is, but it's hard to believe. Like, this, these, these people just seem like happy little elves. They're That's pretty it. happy. That's yeah. all I got. They're little... Yeah. The conclusion they come to, because we find out that there's like basically an EMP that goes through their planet, which threatens to kill them because they're so integrated with technology, and that's why they brought the Enterprise there. Feels like a cautionary tale. Really does. But then when Picard asked them, why didn't you just ask for help? They said, well, you might have said no. You could have said no. And Will points out that for the binar, because their language is based on the ones and zeros of binary, that yes or no are the only options. There's no compromise. There's no negotiation. So, lore and data never were allowed to have childhood and adolescence. The binar are stuck there. Yeah, they kind of come across as children. Yes. In a lot of ways. Well, the computer's the parent, right? And it's not just because they're small. It is very childlike logic to say mm-hmm. it's better to ask for forgiveness than permission. Yep. They are. I, I just finished watching um, season two of For All Mankind. And so the binar never learned how to live in the gray is the term from the show. Yeah. I like that. So we also find out, as I said before, that Data is third in command of the ship. We also, I, I forgot to mention this earlier, there's no Deanna in either of these episodes. Yeah, I was just starting to like her. Yeah, it's kind of odd that she's just missing. I mean, that does happen in Trek where you just won't see a character during an episode, but it's just funny that we picked two episodes where she wasn't there in a row. The last thing I'll ask you is, what did you make of the ending? Because Will comes back to the holodeck and Minuet is still there, but she's not Minuet anymore. 
Does this mean that Will was in some way dating the computer of the Binar? Well, yeah, because once again, they, they set it up. So they took whatever it was that made her her with them? Yes. I've just always thought that, that was That doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Like, I don't, I don't know why they couldn't have left the upgrade there, but, I mean, I guess. Well, I, I wonder if what made her her was part of the artificial intelligence of their computer. And when they re-downloaded it and scrubbed the enterprise of the file, like, could it exist outside of... I mean, their computer. no, but that doesn't explain why she looks different physically. It just seems weird. It just seems like a shortcut to showing us that she's not the same person, which is, you know. I mean, sure. that's fair. I just think it's interesting that maybe Will dated an artificial intelligence and also maybe that Minuet, if she is the computer of the Binar or an aspect of the main computer of the Binar, that she is actually the one who planned the heist. So the computer of Scarlett Johansson. Pretty much. Got it. Yeah. I just thought that was very interesting. This is not the last time we will see Minuet, by the way. Really? Yeah. She oh, is. I'm I'm She interested. will return. She will? She's played by Carolyn McCormick, who those of you who are Law & Order fans might recognize her. She was a regular cast member in Law & Order. Also, I wanted to point out Gene Dynarski had appeared in TOS episodes. He's the commander of the station. He appeared in both Mud's Women and the Mark of Gideon episodes of TOS. So that was a cool little, like, he's a Trek person and he's in this it, one, it's too. It's really funny. He looked like like a Normcore Picard. He kind of did. Yeah, it was it was weird. Are all male captains of space stations and spaceships in this future required to be bald? Maybe. Maybe. Maybe it's one of the things they look for. All right, I think we've done enough damage for today. So join us next week for our discussion of the Next Generation episodes, When the Bow Breaks, and Home Soil. You can find me on Twitter at Suela Tessa. Suela is spelled S-W-E-H-L-A. And you can find Sam on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris 9. Until next time, live long and prosper.